Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles located on the tables in the aisle, so feel free to get one of those if you like. I'll give you a minute to turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 10 through 17. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. The thesis for today's message is this. How you view this sacred book will determine your faithfulness to Jesus and your effectiveness for Jesus. Let me say that again. How you view this sacred book will determine your faithfulness to Jesus and your effectiveness for Jesus. The title of today's message is Breath of God. We all know that our life is found in our breath. That when our breath ceases, so does life cease. And the same is true in our spiritual lives. That when we fail to meet with God, uh, we show up in such a way that we're unprepared, ill-equipped for battle. Satan easily overcomes us by his advances, the world's appeal... And we need the Word of God in our lives desperately. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment um, some of the younger men might have an easier time at this than others. Imagine what a modern-day soldier looks like. Can you get a picture in your head if you've watched the news? Or um, I went back and actually researched what a modern-day soldier carries. He carries at times 60% of his body weight. Anywhere from 70 to 130 pounds, depending on what, which specific mission he's headed out to accomplish. I looked back at uh, and came up with actually a list for you of the, of the Navy SEAL team that went in order to capture or to kill Osama bin Laden. I've got a picture for you that I'll put on the screen. Think with me for just a minute about what a modern day soldier wears, what he's equipped with. That Navy SEAL team went out with body armor, with helmets, with uh, body armor plates, 
They went out with two tourniquets because we have two uh, femoral arteries, and so they don't want to bleed to death in case they're hurt. Um, They went out with weapons, pistols, assault rifles, suppressors so that they can shoot quietly, grenade launchers, fixed blade knives, knives that close, tools. They went out with sledgehammers, bolt cutters, flashlights, technology, incredible technology that modern day warriors are equipped with, night vision, chem lights so they can paint vehicles or different people to show that they're good guys. Don't kill them. And you can only see the chem lights with with, uh, night vision goggles that only we have. There's all types of technology that soldiers go out with. Advanced communications uh, gear with uh, technical optics that they use for shooting and looking at targets. Uh, There's tactical equipment for breaching and explosives. There's all types of gear. Ammo, Five different types of grenades from flashbangs on down. All types of food, water, boots, gloves, glasses, watches. So they're all synchronized and on time. Incredible the amount of equipment. That's just the name just a little bit. Now imagine a soldier's effectiveness if he was sent out not like this. But if he was sent out with a t-shirt on and a pair of sweatpants and he was barefoot and just had his bare hands. Like, notice he even has gloves on in this picture. Now, imagine how long a soldier would remain in the fight if he were sent out with a t-shirt on and a pair of sweatpants. He'd never even enter the fight. He doesn't have a weapon on his side. He'd be ill-equipped for battle. He'd really do no good at all. Harm would come to him, in fact, if that were how he were sent out into battle. Now, we can take the picture down. We're all followers of Jesus, and we aren't modern-day soldiers. We don't carry guns and knives, and um, we don't scheme ways that we can kill the enemy. Yet, we do find ourselves in a battle against spiritual forces, against cosmic powers of darkness. And our enemy is very subversive. He's tactically gifted, very stealth. He shows up in many different styles of uniforms, and it's often hard to identify. He uses silent but lethal weapons against us, not biological or chemical in nature, but equally as deadly. Weapons like jealousy or envy or lust or comparison or shame, mental health struggles, anxiety, doubt, fear. He has many different ways in which he shows up, many different weapons. Ephesians 6 instructs us in in what pieces of Paul describes body armor we're to put on in order to be prepared for battle, in order that we will be protected from what he calls the schemes of the devil. And in Paul's letter to Timothy, he reminds his young protege of one of the most important weapons that's needed in order to boldly proclaim the message of the gospel. In Ephesians 6, he refers to the weapon as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're to put it on. See, the Scriptures are the resource that we need most for growing in Jesus. Some people might say, I thought prayer was what we needed most. And as 
important as prayer is, prayer is paired with the Scriptures, but if we don't have the Scriptures, we don't even know how to pray rightly. We need the Scriptures for growing in Jesus. The Scriptures are our guide, they're our map, they're our GPS along the path of life. They steer us away from trouble. They help us to navigate to a life Yes, after death, but they also lead us to life with God now. Don't miss that. The Scriptures are the very words of God. We should treat the Scriptures like a soldier treats his weapon. A good soldier who is dependent upon his weapon always knows that his weapon needs to be cleaned and that it needs to be ready for battle. We should treat the Scriptures as precious gold. And as Paul faces death, he warns Timothy of the disobedience and the ungodliness that will creep into the church. And then he goes on and he encourages him to remain steadfast and faithful. And Paul reminds Timothy that the source of his faithfulness and also the source of his effectiveness is rooted in the Scriptures. So let's look, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes and he says to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Underline this last statement. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. The fact that God had delivered Paul from all his persecutions would be encouragement to Timothy. Encouragement as he stood up under Nero's reign in a time and a culture in which it was a death sentence to declare yourself to be a Christian. And Paul reminds Timothy that the Lord always rescues His people frequently from death and sometimes by death. Either way, he declares nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We don't always think that way in this day and time. These are valuable words if you've ever found yourself in a place of real struggle. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Anybody ever found yourself in a really desperate place? You know you're desperate when you begin to play the game. How bad could it get? Have you ever done that before? Like anxiety gets so high that you're just like, okay, let me just talk myself down for a minute. And so I remember moving to Memphis and we didn't have a house secured yet to rent and we didn't have a partner church, which kind of meant we don't know where we're going to live and we don't know how we're going to pay the bills or buy groceries. And I remember a day sitting in Nashville where I just like, I started playing that game. Like how, how bad could it get? And like, I painted this picture where we're living in uh, my father-in-law's barn in Alabama. And we've backed all our stuff in and emptied it into his two-bay garage. And we're living there in that little two-bedroom house that we call the barn. And we're out in the middle of nowhere. And we're still trying to figure out how to make it happen. Like that, to me, was as bad as it could get. Like there is a place we'll live. We won't be homeless. We might be stuck in the middle of nowhere feeling like Moses on some side of the desert, but like, we'll be okay, right? And sometimes in our lives, we become so desperate that you look at my situation and say, that's really easy. That's no big deal. I've got cancer. 
I've got a death sentence. I've got a loved one who's going to pass away. I've got a spouse who's going to leave me. And in those situations, we're reminded that no matter how bad it gets, that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Nothing. Be certain of that. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Truth is declared. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul is reminding Timothy that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. That Jesus always rescues Sometimes from death and sometimes through death. But nothing will separate us from His love. Now we pick up in verses 12 and 13 and he says, it's important words, serious words. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, not might, will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We're called to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. He he declares that. And the world needs to hear the good news. And Paul reminds us that all who are called to live a godly life, that's each of us who have said, I'm dependent on Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I'm following Him by faith as Lord and Savior. We're called to live a godly life. We need to be reminded of that as Christians because I think sometimes we have become so focused on doing good So we've kind of gotten hung up with a church who's all about holiness and all about what they don't do and all about what they're against. And so we've moved over to being such a people of do-gooders and we're going to help the homeless and we're going to help those who are uh, without and we're going to do all these good things that we forget that while we do need to show the gospel, that's very important. One of the greatest ways that we can share the gospel is through lives that are lived holy. Lives that look different from the world. Lives in which we worship Jesus and we say, I'm going to live as Jesus would live if He were in my shoes today. And so Paul reminds Timothy that you're called to live a godly life. And as you do that, you will suffer persecution. With our commitment to follow Christ faithfully, the Christian sets the course of their life directly opposite to the course of the world system. Confrontation and conflict, are they're going to show up. They're inevitable. They're going to show up in our life. John 15, 20, Jesus' words, He says this. He reminds us of it. John 15, 20, He says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Those are Jesus' words to us. Those aren't words that we hear a lot. But when we face persecution, we can rejoice because Acts 5 shows us that we're in really good company. In Acts 5 verse 41, Paul writes, uh, not Paul, I'm sorry. Um, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We're in good company when we suffer. We're in the company of Jesus. 
Now Paul picks up in verses 14 through 17, and I want us to pay particular attention. He's telling Timothy, okay, you've followed me, you've been faithful, nothing's going to separate you from the love of Jesus, so be confident in Jesus, you're bound to Jesus, even if, even if you face death, you can go out boldly and courageously. Like, this is a bold gospel. And then he's saying, hey, and by the way, be holy even in the midst of suffering. Now, in verses 14 through 17, we see a foundation where this boldness and where this courage actually comes from. And it goes back to the sword of the Spirit that we talked about. This is our weapon. We see it here in verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. And I firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's Paul saying here? What's Paul commanding Timothy to do? Paul's instructing Timothy to continue to remain faithful in his worship of God through the Scriptures. Throughout the Bible, we've seen this pattern. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. We don't run out and do great things for God. No, God speaks and we respond. In that pattern, he's calling Timothy to continue in that rhythm of listening to God. And and when Paul speaks of the sacred writings of the Bible, he says they're to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, as we look particularly at verse 16, we see um, a very important doctrine that's been um, historically one of the most important doctrines to the church throughout the ages. And I want to ask you this morning, what do you believe about these words? Like when you think about the Bible, what do you believe about these words? Not what did your mama believe? Or what did your daddy believe? Not what your husband or your wife believes. Not what your Sunday school teacher growing up or, or someone who led you to Christ or a preacher that you thought a lot of. What do you believe about these words? Because how you view this book will determine your faithfulness to Jesus and your effectiveness for Jesus. How you view this book. Benny Newton was um, an ex-con turned pastor. He was famous during the L.A. riots. Some of y'all are too young to really remember the L.A. riots. They were terrible. A lot of people were killed during that time. Um, Rodney King was beaten, and the Los Angeles police officers were found to be not guilty, and Los Angeles broke into riots in which so much of L.A. was burned, and it was horrible. Random people beaten, and there was one Latino man who was um, going about his regular deliveries for the day, and he was yanked from his truck. And he was, as he was being brutally beaten, one man tried to cut his ear off, another man stomped his chest, and Benny Newton uh, would forever be remembered as the pastor, ex-con turned pastor, who came in, clerical collar on, and Bible in hand, as he stood over this random 
random Latino man and declared to the rioters, Stop! Stop! If you want to kill him, you'll have to kill me. And his image was flashed all over the news. He died a year later at the age of 60. Now, what about Benny Newton? What about this book would lead a man into harm's way and that he would go into harm's way with this book in hand, risking his life for the sake of the gospel? What about this book? What did he believe about this book? What do you believe about this book? Paul says that these very words that we have within the Scriptures, he says they are breathed out by God. That these words are God-breathed. That, that the doctrine of biblical inspiration is what we're talking about. That God's very words were given to men in specific situations and circumstances, yet retained the very words of God Himself. Second Peter Chapter 1 says this. 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You say, how did that work? I don't know. But I can tell you that this continues to be the most popular book throughout time. That it was written in an amazing way. It was written um, over 14 centuries by over 40 authors from all walks of life, from kings and peasants, people who were blue-collar, who were tax collectors, some who were royalty. Over 1,400 years that this book was written by authors on multiple continents, most who never met one another because they didn't live to be 1,500 years old, so they didn't meet one another. And there are no disagreements with one continuous storyline throughout the whole book that Jesus is our rescuer. It's an amazing book. Archaeologically, we have more evidence for the Bible than we have for almost any other piece of historical literature. If you have questions, I'd love to share some books with you. If you say, I don't know if I really believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I've got some books I'd love for you to read that just walk you through the history of how the canon and how the Bible came to be known and, and how it was uh, saved over the years and how it came to be known as the Bible. How you view this book will determine your faithfulness to Jesus and your effectiveness for Jesus. Do you believe that this book is inspiring? Or do you believe that it's truly inspired by God? There's a difference. Most Americans believe this book is inspiring. But if you believe that it's truly inspired by God, then as you read through it, you can't pick and choose what you decide to obey. I can remember sitting um, at Samford University, uh, a good Baptist private Christian college in Birmingham, Alabama. And I can remember sitting there on the grass after one of my classes and struggling with this question, do I believe in the inspiration of this book? Because the majority of my professors did not. They came from Harvard, Yale, and Duke, University of Chicago, and they were smart in the way of the Jesus seminar. So they had learned which words were really Jesus's and which words really weren't. 
And I was made fun of at times because I actually believed that this book was inspired. I actually believed it was a truth of God and that we were called to live by it, all of it. I actually believed that Paul's writings were just as important as what Jesus said and that it wasn't like, well, Jesus said that, so it's really important, but Paul said it, so it's not as important because Paul actually hated Jesus. But when Jesus left heaven and came back and met Paul on the Damascus road and said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And he called Paul to be a follower of his. And then Jesus discipled Paul in the way, in his own way. And when Paul became an apostle, all of a sudden I began to realize that Paul's words are just as important as Jesus' words because Paul's words are Jesus' words. This book is inspired by God. I believe it. Do you believe that it's inspired by God? Because if you don't, then you need to go home and pull out a pair of scissors. And here's my challenge to you. Begin to cut out the things in this book that you don't believe. And what you will wind up with is papers that are filled with holes. And you'll have a book of your own wisdom. And I know where my wisdom takes me. My wisdom takes me down a path that isn't good. I don't trust my heart. My heart is wicked. There's nothing good about me except for the fact that Jesus has redeemed me. And when I trust in His gospel and in His way, all of a sudden, His path leads me to joy and it leads me to peace. You've got to decide. It's a tough decision to make. Are you going to believe by faith that this book is inspired by God? And if it is, who knows better how to live, you or Him? I've challenged you before, but if you look at this book and you actually believe that Jesus knew how to live life better than you do, then it means that you need to make some adjustments in your life, that you need to actually repent of some things, confess some sins, some patterns within your life in which you know that you're living in a way that's in opposition to Jesus' way. And even though that might be hard and painful at times, it will produce peace and joy in your life because I guarantee you Jesus knows how to live better than you do. I pray you'll trust Him. I pray I'll trust Him in that. We have to decide if we believe this book because Peter, uh, Paul goes on to say it's profitable for teaching. It leads us in the path of truth. He says it's also good for reproof that it stops us from going down the path of error that it's good for correction, that it returns us to the path of truth. When we've forgotten our way, when we've lost our way, folks, we lose our way on a weekly, daily basis. It also is good for training in righteousness. It directs us in application of truth. It shows us how to live in a way that's godly. And the results are when we walk and we believe this book, when we follow this book and obey it, we walk in such a way that he says we're competent, that we're equipped for every good work. It's how Peter's able to say in 2 Peter 1.3 that His divine power has granted us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. We gain knowledge of Him through this book. These are His words. Now here's a question that I want to pose to us today. If Paul says, hey, we're going to continue in this book. These are God's very words. They're breathed out by Him. My question is, why don't we pay attention to Him? Like, why don't we spend time in this book Why aren't we passionate about this book? Why don't we treat Scripture as God's very breath? In verse 14, he challenges Timothy. He says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. Continue. And I think that's the challenge for each of us. Listen, I understand I'm a professional Christian. (laughs) I'm a vocational pastor. 
And it is equally difficult for me to spend time in God's Word as it is for you. See, my temptation is always to run to the next sermon that I have to preach or the next Bible study that I have to lead. Let me get my work done instead of coming to this book and viewing it as God's very words that He desires to speak to me on a daily basis when I take the time to listen, when I take the time to adjust my life to His words and to obey. Why don't we listen to God's Word? Why don't we see this as God's very breath? Um, I think there's a lot of reasons, but I think one could be, very simply, we've lost our first love. I wonder how many of us have lost our first love. Revelation 2 warns the church at Ephesus of this, and that's the very church that Timothy was serving at. The church at Ephesus is described as being a church that worked hard. They toiled. They experienced patient endurance. They couldn't bear with evil. They rooted out false teachers. They haven't grown weary. But what was leveled against them is they've said, you've abandoned the love you had at first. I wonder how many of us, we love Jesus when we came to know Him. But we've become so busy. Where do you give your time, your energy, your passion? What's the first thing you do in the mornings? I knew of one friend uh, growing up uh, in seminary. He's a good buddy of mine. And he made a commitment with his dad. This was their commitment. They said, we're not going to eat breakfast until we feasted on the Scriptures. We're going to spend time with Jesus and we're going to feed our souls before we feed our stomachs. And if we wake up, if we hit the snooze two or three times and it's time to go to work and we don't have time to get into the Word or we only have time for breakfast, we're going to choose the Scriptures over food because we think the Scriptures are more important. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? Have you lost your first love? I think a second reason why some of us don't treat the Scriptures as really God's breath, His words, is we have a gospel of salvation without sanctification. We have a gospel of salvation without sanctification. We think the gospel is good for saving us, but did you know God's desire for your life is to look more and more like Jesus every day? Do you look more and more like Jesus every day? Jesus' first words to His disciples were this, follow me. And it's the same words that He gives to us today. He continues with those same words, follow me. Are you following Jesus? The fundamental means of God's ongoing grace in our life through His Spirit in the life of the Christian and the life of the church is God's self-expression in His Scriptures. We don't come to know God apart from the Scriptures. For some of us, I think we've lost our first love. For some of us, we view the gospel as just something that saves us, but not something that sanctifies us, and so we don't really need it. And thirdly, I think that a lot of us think far too much of ourselves. We just think way too much of ourselves. We think that we have the wisdom, and we think that we have the answers. And quite honestly, we think that Jesus has saved us, and so we're good. And we, we don't really need Jesus, but we do. You say, I don't think that way. I don't think too much of myself. Really? What's the first thing you do in the mornings? Before your feet hit the floor, do you say, Holy Spirit, I need you today. I need you to be my instructor, my teacher. God, I need you to give me the, the, a mind of like Christ so that I walk in a way that's righteous. 
God, I need you to give me power this day to live as your missionary, one who's been sent out. Jesus, thank you that you've redeemed me, that you've called me out. Or do you just jump out of bed and just take off running? Listen, I am reminded regularly, almost on a daily basis, there is rarely a day that I don't get ready to swing my feet out of bed, that I am not hit with anxiety, that I don't feel almost sick at my stomach, as if I think... I don't know how I'm going to get everything done today. I feel like a failure. Life's not going well. It's falling apart. I am met in the morning regularly, almost daily, with this complex set of emotions in which I am literally fearful to go about my day. I've got problems. (laughs) I admit it. And my solution for that is just to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you this day. Holy Spirit, empower me. I don't have what it takes. I've got appointments. I don't know how to meet these people's needs. I can't do this on my own. I'm helpless apart from you. We need Jesus on a daily basis. Jesus lived a life in such a way that he showed us a pattern and a rhythm of rising early to meet with his Father in prayer. We see that in the early part of Mark's gospel. And I think that we forget how important it is that we have a rhythm in our life of spending time with Jesus. You say, I'm so busy. So busy doing what? Your own thing? So busy looking at Facebook? (laughs) So busy watching TV? Like, what are you busy with? What are you passionate about? Are you passionate about food? Are you passionate about what you drink? Are you passionate about your career? Some of us are even passionate about our spouse or our family, but are we passionate about Jesus? Do we spend time with Him? See, as we come to the Scriptures, there's a difference between reminding ourselves of the truth and preaching the truth of God's Word to ourselves. And we need need the Gospel preached to ourselves. We don't need just to remind ourselves that Jesus is with us. We need to tell our hearts, it's going to be okay. You don't have to be anxious because Jesus is with you. His Holy Spirit is in you. You have the mind of Christ and actually believe that and then step out in confidence. Not to remind ourselves of the gospel, but actually to preach the gospel to ourselves in such a way that we actually listen and obey it. Jesus modeled that when he was tempted by Satan. Over and over again, when he opposed Satan, he preached the very words of God to Satan. He would say things like, Man shall not live uh, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's amazing when you look back at Jesus' temptation. Every word he spoke were words of Scripture that he repeated back to Satan. The Moravians, who were famous for their 24-hour prayer that lasted for over 100 years, a small community that only began with about 30 people, um, they committed to pray an hour a day each, and they committed for 24-hour prayer, and their prayer lasted for over 100 years, and God brought revival back in the 1700s. He sent hundreds of missionaries out through them. The Moravians had a regular practice of fending off lukewarmness fending off lukewarmness. And the temptation of our heart is to become lukewarm, to lose our first love, to think, I can figure it out. I've got it. what it takes to get busy in our lives and to forget Jesus. But listen, when we respond, when we get into God's Word, when we, when we understand that it's Jesus' very words, 
When we have questions, when we wonder, what would Jesus do? And when we open this book and realize His words are written here for me. You know, a lot of times we think, man, I just wish Jesus would come and tell me what to do. Do you realize He's done that? Like, He's done it! It's here! Are we willing to open it and get into it? And, it, and it, it's not like, well, I'm desperate today, emergency 911, let me just flip it open and find... It doesn't always work like that, okay? It might sometimes, but it happens little by little as we commit to make it a regular rhythm of our life, to see these words as the very words of God. And as we read them, to say, God, you're still speaking. You speak, I respond. Worship begins with you. You speak, I respond. And every day that we open the scriptures to say, God, you speak to me and I'll be careful to obey. Do you live a life like that? Let me tell you, you will not be faithful to Jesus or effective for Jesus if you don't see these words as his very words. You say, I have no power in my life for sharing the gospel. Then do you see these words as his very words? Because if you don't, you will have no power for holiness or for evangelism. But if you see these words as Jesus' words, and if you listen to Him and obey them, all of a sudden, your life will be transformed. You say, I haven't experienced the gospel in that way. I haven't, when I open the Bible, it's just like what I should do or, or, or you know... Oh, let me open it and try to find some nuggets of truth. I don't know if they're in there. Or let me check that box off one more time. Let me do it as a discipline, you know, and disciplines aren't any fun. But listen, when we see these words as the very words of God, all of a sudden, everything changes in our life. Let me give you one example. At a young people's meeting... A fresh out of seminary youth pastor attempted to impress his group with the wonder of the divine inspiration of Scripture. He gathered the teens in a circle, put a chair in the middle, and handed out Bible verses printed on cards to everyone in the circle. The person sitting in the middle chair was blindfolded and, and asked to tell the group some problem he or she was experiencing. Then someone in the circle was supposed to read an applicable Bible verse that dealt with the problem. The idea was that because the person in the middle chair was blindfolded, he or she would perceive the verse being read as though God Himself was speaking through the words of Scripture. The youth leader thought this was a pretty clever idea. The kids thought it was pretty dumb. None of them would talk about a problem more significant than how to get an A on Miss Bailey's math quizzes. And there really wasn't a good Bible verse for that. <laughs> the whole thing was going miserably. And giggles rather than the voice of God predominated. Then a new girl who had been sitting on the periphery volunteered to sit in the middle chair. The giggling subsided a bit as she was blindfolded because no one knew her well enough to know how she would react. And then she spoke. I'm so miserable. I don't know if I can stand my life anymore. No one knew what to say or do and most just looked down in embarrassment but one boy looked down, saw the verse in his hand and read, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No one cares for me, said the girl. But then another girl in the outer circle read, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Jeremiah 31.3 You don't understand 
said the girl in the blindfold with a desperate, with a voice now desperate. My parents kicked me out last night and said, never come back. Then someone read, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua 1.5. They took the blindfold off the girl. She was crying. And through her tears, she asked a question. Why doesn't God really talk to me that way? Said the youth pastor. He just did. Because the Bible is inspired. It's God's very word. God did speak to you with those verses. When we come to understand God's word as being His very word spoken to our heart, it changes everything. God wants to empower you in order to know Him. You know, I think when we read a text like this, um, if you aren't regularly, daily seeking the Lord as a lifelong learner, the, the first step for most of us is just to try harder. Like to feel really guilty and to just try harder. And to say, oh, I've done it in the past, or oh, I've always wanted to do that. But the gospel tells us that the way to respond, the way for correction is, is not to try harder, but instead to surrender. And so I want to challenge us today, if, if spending time in God's Word and seeking Him, seeing these words as very breath of God, is that, if that's not a rhythm, a daily rhythm in your life, then I want to challenge you today to surrender. To surrender and ask the Holy Spirit to empower you. Not to work harder, but for the Holy Spirit to awaken your heart to the truth of the gospel. And as you do that, I've got three um, things for you to consider. The first is this. Vary your sources. Think about what you read, what you listen to, textbooks, classes, even podcasts. How God spoke to you in the past may not be how He desires to speak to you today. He speaks through a variety of ways. So think about varying your sources. Secondly, create space and redeem your spare time. Create little windows within your day. Like when you're brushing your teeth, maybe you just sit your Bible um, up on, on the vanity and or actually your phone up on the vanity and you just hit play for a proverb for the day, and you listen to it as you brush your teeth. On your car ride, maybe you spend time in prayer. Again, you listen to Scripture. On your break at work, you just take 10 minutes. You say, this 10 minutes, I'm going to read um, a devotional book. That you create little windows. Maybe you say, I'm going to wake up 15 minutes early. I'm going to set my alarm 15 minutes early every week. And I'm, I'm going to read the Bible for 10 minutes, and I'm going to pray for five like create little windows in your life. And then finally, resolve to be a lifelong learner. Resolve in your life to be a lifelong learner. Like don't set the bar low, set the bar high. I've made a goal this year to read 30 books. It's almost like a book a week, it feels like. But that means I've got to turn the TV off. It means I've got to get up earlier. It means some stuff that I want to do, I'll have to do later because I need to read. But I want to be a lifelong learner. I want to continue to know more of Jesus. And not just to know more knowledge, but actually come to experience Him as Savior and Lord in my life. Listen, we're going to move toward communion now. And as we come to His table, I want to invite you that you would consider your heart. And that if you're here and um, it, it, as we come to His table, we're reminded that the bread reminds us of, of His body that was broken for us. The juice reminds us of His blood that was poured out for us. And by His sacrifice, we are healed.
Some of you, it's a season of Lent. You may have given up. I talked to someone earlier. They said, I've given up bread or, or I've given up, you know, something. And as we give up things during Lent, it's not that we need to add to Jesus' sacrifice, but it's that we're reminded of His sacrifice. And during those times where we want chocolate or we want bread or we want something that we've given up, we take those moments and we turn our hearts toward Jesus. And we say, Jesus, would you grow my affections for you? And as we come to His table, may we be reminded of His love for us. May we be reminded of His words to us that are poured out in His Scriptures. And as you come to His table, I just want to take a moment, and I want to ask you to bow your heads. And, and as you prepare your hearts, as you examine your hearts to come to this table, all who trust in Jesus by faith, believing that you are a sinner and that Jesus has died for you, you are welcome at this table. But listen to me carefully with heads bowed and eyes closed. If you have sin in your life, if you have a pattern of unrepentant sin, Jesus says, do not meet him at this table, but instead meet him and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not welcome at this table. Because it's the gospel that cleanses us. And this table reminds us of Jesus' gospel. And, and our appeal to you, if you have sin in your life, is that you would not come here, but that you would turn to Jesus and that you would meet Him and know Him. Now, I want to invite and just ask as you examine your hearts, if you're here today and with, with heads bowed, with eyes closed, if you're here and you, you'd say, I, I recognize I have lost my first love. I've gotten busy. I think way too much of myself. I don't view God's Word as His very breath. I'm being sent into battle, ill-equipped. If that's you, I want to pray for you. But I want to invite you just to stand where you are so that I can acknowledge where you are. No one looking. But if you say, I need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I need to return to this book. I need to hear God's voice. And I'll be careful to obey. If that's you, stand where you are. And I want to pray over you with all heads bowed, with eyes closed. Just acknowledge before God by standing. I need your help, Holy Spirit. If that's you, if you'd be vulnerable enough, stand up. All right, let me pray with all heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you have given us your word, your very breath. Father, would you empower us, those who are standing particularly, God, would you remind them of your goodness, of your everlasting love? Would you give us, because I'm standing and I'm one who needs to be reminded of your goodness on a daily basis, who needs faith to believe that you're actually still at work and that you're going to speak God, would you help us to really believe that you have eyes of love in the way that you see us, that you are for us and not against us, that you never speak words of shame into our hearts and into our lives, that your correction is only for our good, and that when you challenge us to step out in faith, that even though it's hard, that it always leads to joy, and it always brings you glory. God, would you help us to believe that by faith? You can be seated. God, help us to meet you in your word. Help us to become a people who are dependent upon you. God, that prayer becomes like our breath. God, that finding you and meeting you in your word becomes a regular rhythm in our lives. 
And now, Lord, as we come to your communion table, Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. He also said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. His table is open. Come and worship.